God is good. Let's turn in our Bibles, shall we, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul is trying to disciple a young preacher, but more than that, Timothy's a son after his own heart. And uh, he has some, a lot of practical advice as to how to make a good church better. And I think it's applicable to every, every single one of us. This was written towards the end of Paul's life at a time where he's doing a lot of reflecting and, and seems to hone in on what's really important in trying to pass that on to him. Most of, of Paul's letters were written to churches, but this is written to an individual and has a very personal tone to it. I want you to put yourself in Timothy's place. Paul trying to disciple you this morning. God trying to touch your heart and show you what is important to him. Timothy, Titus, and Philemon were three men that God was raising up for the, the ministry, and he does that through the older men in the church, did that through Paul his, his whole life. And as the churches were increasing in, in number and growing throughout the empire, there needed to be a little bit of order and structure given to it, all of it under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit of God but always in accordance with the Word of God, everything done decently and in order. And that is certainly what we'd like to practice in, in Calvary Chapel's east side. You don't want to quench the Spirit. You don't want to get out of alignment with God's Word either. There is balance between the Word of God and the Spirit of God. The author is God Himself. So um, I think as we look at these practical portions of chapters 5 and 6 of 1 Timothy and realize... I need to do these things. I need to learn and grow and change. <clears throat> so 1 Timothy 6 and verse 1, all who were under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are things that you are to teach and urge on them. What's fascinating to me is that Paul doesn't advocate that the church go out and picket or write petitions to Nero to change the issue of slavery. I'm, I'm surprised that, that the Scripture has virtually nothing to say about slavery. It never condones slavery, doesn't condemn it, and here is why. Social action doesn't bring anybody an inch closer to the throne room of God. Social action may address social ills, but it doesn't bring the people that violate God's Word an inch closer to heaven. You can picket and you can placard all you want to. You can march and you can do all the rest of that stuff, none of which was done by anybody in the Bible thinking that we're doing God's work when, in fact, if we're not conducting ourselves biblically, you have to ask the question, is this God's intention? Maybe it's better for us to share Jesus Christ with those people. Maybe they need to get saved, and then we don't have to worry about how they're going to vote on issues that are near and dear to our heart. Introduce them to Jesus Christ. Christians vote more like Christians and less like pagans. You can, you can lean on the pagans, and you can do all the political stuff and all the rest of that, but the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. 
We have to understand that the weapons that we have are far stronger than any amount of picketing or placarding or marches or demonstrations and all the rest of that stuff that is commonly done in the world today. But you don't see any of that stuff in the Bible. So what makes us think that it is okay to do today? We're adopting the ways of the world and acting like our weapons of our warfare are carnal and are of the world. Maybe if we spent less time on the picket line and more time on our knees, the kingdom of God's purposes would be advanced further. Maybe more people would come into the kingdom of God. Wouldn't that be glorious? I think that when we come to practical portions of Scripture like 1 Timothy 5 and 6, it addresses all of our preconceived notions that have been handed down to us through culture. And we realize that often culture has little to do with Scripture. And as a Christian, we should be scriptural in the practice of our faith. Would you agree with that? Would you agree with the fact that we can accomplish mighty things by the power of God's Holy Spirit in, on, and through us? Yet the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, or they're not of the world. In fact, it was Christians that eventually brought down slavery. The abolitionist movement was, was put together by Christians but Christians that were out there sharing their faith, people that were sharing Scripture and what it has to say about the value of a human being and a human life, if we get people in touch with God and His Word and saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, they will vote more appropriately. We have to understand that we're trying to address issues in our society, and we've got a lot of issues. Every time you turn on the nightly news, you're hearing of all sorts of killings and people out of control and drugs, and the list goes on and on. What are the answers? For the Christian, they're always spiritual. God is the answer. God is the answer. I've written his letter, many letters as anybody, uh, to politicians, people like that. Uh, I always get the standard reply, thanks for your letter, but... So I, I don't think that they care much about what you and I think on an individual basis. But I'll tell you what, prayer can move the hand of God and shake heaven and earth itself. <clears throat> you can also look at verses, these first opening verses here, and see that while slavery is not the issue that it was in Roman times, where often in Roman society, slaves outnumber free men two to one. And yet, <clears throat> what do you got in that cup, buddy? Hot tea. Lord bless you. It says, of course, in Scripture, a cup of cold water. I'm, you know, just saying hot tea, cold water. There's an extrapolation here. Thank you. You know, everything was hunky-dory at my house till half an hour before time to preach. Then all of a sudden, my stomach decided to get really weird on me, got really dizzy, thought I was going to pass out. Things just went from bad to worse, and I couldn't work up a spit. And I think, what in the world's going on? Spiritual warfare. Who is opposed to the teaching of God's Word? Satan. And we have to understand that how we combat him is not by adopting the ways of the world. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how we defeat the world, the blood of Jesus Christ. So uh, I, I really encourage you to think strongly about uh, rethinking political activism. 
I think we should be known less for political activism and more for activism of our faith, sharing Jesus Christ with people. I am surprised. And there are so many other social issues like slavery that are all but ignored in the Bible, never condoned. God's Word doesn't condone anybody's sins, but slavery was very common in the, in the first century. It has been down through the ages in many societies and different parts of the world. But for the, the situation that Timothy is facing, just imagine this, that the slave was the pastor of the church. So when he was at home six days of the week, he is a slave to his master. But when they go to church, the slave is the pastor of the church. The master's underneath him. It could get kind of weird. And so he says those that are under the yoke of slavery, consider your masters worthy of full respect. Regardless of, of your station in life, people are worthy of respect. I think if we treated everybody on the planet with dignity and respect, we wouldn't have half of the social issues that we have. Treat everybody, whether it's police or authorities or, or just the man or woman standing in line next to you, everybody is made in the image of God and is worthy of respect. That's what the Bible says. And I know we live in a, in a hot-button age today in our society where people want to take things into our, their own hands. And I think for the Christian, that could be a deadly mistake it's far better off in the hands of God. But if we find ourselves in a difficult employment situation, perhaps these opening two verses apply to us. We think, well, I've got a bad boss at work, so I'm just going to do as little as possible. Well, that's exactly the opposite of what we're told here in these two verses. How do you justify that as a Christian? You can't. You should work, as a Christian, you should be the first one there, last one to leave, and the hardest worker while you're there. That glorifies Jesus Christ. To do otherwise treats the, you know, the situation like you're of the world instead of, of the kingdom of God. Those who have believing masters, don't treat them with less respect, but more. No, in all that you do, do it as unto the Lord. So understand the guy who signs your paycheck or your immediate supervisor work, that's not your boss. Jesus Christ is. So, so be a diligent worker by extrapolation here. Instead, they are to serve them better. Interesting, the word serve there is related to the word slave, doulos. Be a servant to people around you. Boy, I'll tell you what, we, Christian witness could go a long ways if we just did this one thing. If we served people, if you went to work and said, I'm here to serve, not to lord it over anybody, not to do as little as I can and still take home a paycheck. I'm doing all of my works under the Lord. I want to glorify Him. How do you glorify God? By obeying His Word, by actually putting it into practice. Did you know this is not a Bible study? This is a commission for you to read what it says and then when you walk out of here to actually do it. When it says... Wives, submit to your husbands. Did you know that God actually expects you to do that? Where it says, husbands, love your wives. Did you know, guys, God actually expects you to do that? Not make excuses why you're not. Where it says, serve your masters at work. Guess what? God expects you to actually do that. So this isn't a Bible study. This is an exhortation to put into practice the things that you already know you should be doing, but probably aren't. That's called exhortation. That's me coming alongside of you saying, don't just read it. 
Let this stuff find its way into your heart. Let it change your life. We can turn this world upside down with the love of Jesus Christ. We can love people right into the kingdom of God. But let's not get caught up in all of the nonsense that is dividing the world today. Christ has called us to love and unity, hasn't he? We're all one in the body of Christ. doesn't matter what your skin color is or your political affiliation, background, anything. We are one because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We're an army. If we all got on our knees simultaneously, I think we could change the world we live in overnight. That's what it's about. That's what Paul is trying to do is put some practicality to the faith. Actually do these things. So here's what I expect of you when you go to work tomorrow. Be a blessing to your boss. Okay? Don't grumble. Don't grouse. Don't complain. Serve. Underline the word serve there in verse 2. Circle it. Do something to call your attention to it because tomorrow morning your test begins in that workplace. Good boss or bad. Pray for them. Love them. Encourage them. Bless them. Serve. In fact, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul had said this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Ah, that changes the entire work situation for every one of us. Not for human masters. <clears throat> Excuse me since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. There are eternal benefits in obeying the Word of God. Eternal benefits. doesn't mean that necessarily things get easier at work. They'll probably get harder. That's because Satan will oppose you. Here's the good news. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You've already got the victory. Satan doesn't want you to know that. You already have the victory. These are the things, verse 2, you are to teach and urge on them. So I'm your Timothy today. My job is to encourage you to actually do these things. Now, you're probably wondering, okay, Pastor Jim, this is my homework assignment. Which part of verses 1 and 2 do you expect me to do? Grab your highlighter, just hit all, every one of them in mind is underlined, every single one of them. Did you know that it is not a sin to use a highlighter in your Bible? Did you know that it is a sin if you don't? Bring your highlighter, <clears throat> because the things that are important to you, you will want to refer back to time and time and time again. There is little respect for authority in the world today. Have you noticed? <clears throat> my parents taught me a long time ago, do what the authorities tell you to do. So there are speed limit signs out here on Platte Avenue, and did you know that God actually expects me to do the speed limit? Most, most guys don't think that, the, they think that sign is a suggestion. It's called a law for a reason. It's not called a suggestion. It's called a law. But Christians violate it and think nothing about it whatsoever. I don't wear my seatbelt because I hate seatbelts. Okay, fine. Do it as unto the Lord. God said, obey the authorities. There's a seatbelt law. Texting and driving or talking on a cell phone at the same time. Did you know it's against the law? 
So why do you do it? How do you justify that before the King of kings and Lord of lords? Christianity must be above all else practical. It should actually change the... I mean, the pagans are out there breaking the law all day long with the speed limits and with their cell phones and the, their seatbelts. The list goes on and on. But you and I are supposed to be different. Did you know that? We're not supposed to look like society, act like society, or justify why we don't simply obey God's Word. So my job, as it says at the close of verse 2, these are the things you are to teach, Pastor Jim, and urge on them. <clears throat> Excuse me for my voice today. It seems to be going south quickly. So let's look at verse 3, because this isn't a problem with, with for rich people. It's a problem for poor people. The love of money. Oh, I don't have a love for money. I just want more. Okay. If anyone teaches false doctrines like the Gnostics did in the first century, and that's where that heresy came from, the root of the word being a special knowledge. If anyone teaches false doctrines, does not agree on the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. That's what drives false teachers, pride and ego, conceit. As he's trying to point that out to us. Did you know the Gnostics believed that the material world was created by an emanation of the highest God, trapping in their own words the divine spark within the human being? Divine spark. Remember the movie The Transformers? Where these robots had the auto spark that made robots into living entities. That was a major tenet of the second century heresy called Gnosticism. Isn't Hollywood subtle? The divine spark. All good robots have it. <laughs> you know, we're made in the image of God. But this divine spark the Gnostics taught could be liberated by acquiring their special hidden secret knowledge. Some of their core teachings uh, said that all matter is evil and the non-material spiritual realm is good. So it doesn't matter what you do in your flesh. That sounds just like the world. There is an unknowable God, they taught, who gave rise to many lesser spirit beings they called aeons. One evil lower spirit being the creator who made the universe. Gnosticism refused to deal with the issue of sin. Everybody wants a little religion in our world today, but they never want to give up their sin. And Christians struggle with that today because we live in a society where everything you turn on on TV teaches you that sleeping around is okay if you're not married. The sex outside of marriage is fine. Recreational drugs, that's fine. We're starting to adopt all of the, the culture around us, their morals and values, but they are antithetical to the things of God. But we say that's okay. We've somehow or another justified that to the point that in, in some demographics, 80% of children are born out of wedlock in America. That is unbelievable to me. I wonder how many of those are Christians that said, well, it's okay for me to do that, though. I can sleep around. I can get pregnant outside of wedlock. I, I can live an immoral lifestyle. Everybody does it. Christians should not do it. Gnosticism didn't even deal with sin. Said that whatever you did with your body was, didn't matter because what really mattered was the, the spirit, this all spark within you. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It was condemned as 
by Paul and Peter and Jesus Christ himself. But look at what it goes on to say about these false teachers. Uh, con- verse 4, they're conceited he- false teachers. They know nothing that is of truly spiritual matters. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Corruption doesn't limit itself to the field only of politics. There's a lot of corruption that is found in church pulpits. You think godliness that is a means to financial gain? Well, sure. Ask some of the popular heretics out there today, some of which claim to be millionaires. There is one false teacher, while he started out good in the ministry many, many years ago, has now declared himself to be the world's first Christian billionaire. He's fleecing the flock, and everybody thinks that's that's okay. There is one gentleman by the name of Creflo Dollar, a very charismatic teacher. Uh, Creflo Dollar Ministries takes in, by his own admission, $80 $80 million a year in tithes, offerings, books, tapes, CDs, DVDs. $80 million a year. How much does a pastor need to make exactly? Does it seem like wretched excess to you? Sir, I could be wrong. Is there anybody in here that makes $80 million a year? Can I see your hand, please? If you do, please tithe. We could use it. We'll put it to good use, I promise you. Kenneth Copeland brags about his organization bringing in over $100 million a year and claims to be the first evangelical billionaire on planet Earth. How did he get that way? By fleecing the flock. By fleecing the flock. But on the other hand, in verse 6, Paul tells Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. That's what the world is desperately searching for is contentment. Where, where's your level of contentment at in your life? On a scale of 1 to 10, how content are you with what God has given you? Or do you buy into that lie of the world that you need more? You got a house, but you need a bigger house. You make a little money, but you need to make more money. You drive a nice car, but you need a nicer car, a bigger one. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And here's why. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content. With that, say content. Are you? Are you content with your marriage? Are you content with your job? Are you content with your walk with the Lord? Are, are you in a place of peace? Hmm contentment. It's a frame of mind that starts in the soul that God has touched. Contentment never comes from the possession of material things. It can't. It's a spiritual quality. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians 4.12, and he said, I have learned the secret of being content. Now, if Paul can learn it, you can too. Content is not praying that your situation changes, it's finding contentment in your present situation. And I think whatever lessons are learned there from the Lord, once we pass those lessons, He can bless us and move us on. But He'll often leave us in a difficult situation until we've learned our lessons. 
give you one, for instance, I, I've shared before. When I was on the Colorado Springs Fire Department, uh, and I, was, I was, had not been on for more than about a year, I got sent to one station where the most viciously anti-Christ person I ever met in my life was in the fire station. His nickname was Snake. He lived, I'm serious, he was Snake, like the, guy, like the Garden of Eden kind of snake, yeah. <clears throat> this guy hated Christians with a passion. And uh, I, I just, I, I had a difficult time with this guy. Year after year after year. And he just went from bad to worse. And of course, he had seniority on me. <clears throat> and I prayed constantly. I prayed constantly, Lord, I'm really struggling with, with, with loving this guy. Lord, I know I'm supposed to love. I know, I, Lord, I'm really struggling with this. That went on for five years. And one day in the locker room when I was praying to the Lord and saying how much I was struggling against this guy that was the, I think he is the Antichrist. He, he was the Antichrist. And I said, God, I'm having trouble loving him. And God just said, stop. You haven't been honest for five years with me about this guy, Snake. And I said, what do you mean, Lord? He says, you don't have trouble loving him. Be honest. You hate his guts. And it was like somebody had slapped me in the face. I hadn't been honest with God. I wanted to sugarcoat it. Because Christians, we, we can't hate people. We can't, you know, we've just got to turn the other cheek, right? Well, after a while, your cheeks get tired of getting slapped. And I was really, I was struggling <laughs> in lots of ways with this guy. And finally, when I said, you're right, Lord, I just like to take him outside and mop up the floor with him, <clears throat> the truth be told. And God commended me for my honesty and said, now then pray for his salvation. Pagans act like pagans because they're pagans. What did you expect? Christians act like Christians or should because they've been born again by the blood of Jesus Christ. So which do you act like in the workplace? You act like all the pagans around you? Or is there something different because you're honest with God about your personal struggles? You don't sugarcoat it because it doesn't sound Christian when you say, I really hate this guy. But if that's honest, maybe a little honesty between you and the Lord could pay some big dividends. Paul said in writing to the Philippian church, I have learned to be content. When I finally admitted to God how I really felt about this guy, I had peace like I hadn't had in five years. I was honest with God, and he rewarded me with peace, and I just started praying for this guy's salvation, and it wasn't a month later that God moved me out of that fire station. I'd learned my lesson. only took me five years. How long has it taken you? You learn to be content? I mean, how long does it take you to be content with your marriage, your work situation? Are you content with your car? Well, it's a beater. Praise God, you don't have to walk. And if you walk, praise God that you have feet. I mean, you can always find something to be thankful for. Paul said, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. What is the secret? How do you learn it? It's found at the foot of Jesus. It's found in honesty with him. I give it all to him. I give it all to him. My fears, doubts, failures. But you've got to be honest with the Lord. 
Don't excuse it, Lord, I, I, you know, I messed up. Call it sin. God does. I sinned, and you've sinned against God. Then God, forgive me in Jesus' name. Equip me to the challenge that is before me, Lord. Godliness with contentment. Where does godliness come from? Being godly. Being in God's presence. Being in His Word, in praise, in worship. Seeking His face, in prayer, in service to the saints. Godliness is when you and I act more like God. Do you still struggle with the things that come out of your mouth? You, you struggle with road rage? I mean, there are some real baseline issues that you and I have to deal with. You know, you should be the most peaceful person on Powers Avenue at rush hour. You know? And when they're giving you the single-digit salute, you should be praying for them because they need Jesus in the worst way. Don't act like them. If we can turn people to faith in Christ Jesus, I'll tell you what, road rage will go away. The crimes, the violence that is pandemic in our country, COVID, that's not the pandemic. Violence is. Drugs are. There's a lot of pandemics out there besides COVID and its ancillary diseases that come out of that. I want to be content regardless of what I'm facing. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. That's the secret of being content. It is directly related to how close your walk with Jesus Christ is. Are you in His Word daily? Are you in prayer? Are you submitted to Him? Are you quick to confess sins? Are you quick to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, like the tax collector in the temple did? Are you walking in humility? Are you walking in love and grace? As a Christian, the fruit of the Holy Spirit should be evident in your life. What's the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Where are you at on those issues? Where are you at on those issues? Draw as close to Jesus Christ as you possibly can. When John the Baptist was preaching repentance from sin, Roman soldiers asked him one time, what should we do? It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 3 and verse 14. And, and uh, John the Baptist told him, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Content. Hmm. In Hebrews 13, 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God says, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's the secret of contentment, knowing God's walking with you. He's right there. He's before you. He's behind you. He's on all sides of you. He's got this. He wants you to worry about nothing. He wants you to pray about everything. In that place is contentment, regardless of whether you're young, old, single, married, rich, poor. Those things are irrelevant at that point. What matters is that I'm walking with Jesus. In that place, I find peace. In that peace, I find contentment. <clears throat> God wants the very best for you. He wants you to be content. So I just want you to take your highlighter or go back home this, this afternoon and go back over chapter 6 here, First Timothy, and say, Lord, there's room for improvement. 
in my life. Would you help me, Lord, become more godly? Would you help me, Lord, be a better emissary for you than I am? Would you fill me again, Holy Spirit? I yield to you. I seek your face. The flesh is weak. The spirit is willing. God knows that. So ask for help often. Ask for help often. He's more than willing to give it to you. I, I think we only find contentment when our hearts are rooted in eternal and heavenly things, not earthly things. There's no contentment in a new car with 22-inch wheels and a mortgage that nobody can afford. There's no contentment in that place. But the lie of the enemy is that we can find it there. We can't. Being content is difficult because all of the advertising of this world, it appeals to the flesh and is designed to create discontent inside of us. I was fine with my little beater pickup truck until I saw a new Ram, you know, whatever on TV for only $76,000. Do you know my parents' first house they bought in security for $13,000? And now I'm supposed to think that a $76,000 truck is okay? I'd have to sell my house and live in my truck to be able to afford those payments. But somehow or another, we've gotten mixed up on these things. I think I need more. I think I want more. I think I'm entitled to more. Boy, what, what an age of entitlement we live in. Always, every time you turn on a TV, ooh, something bigger, better, fancier, more chic, whatever that is, because I've never been it, so I don't know. Verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world. We can take nothing out of it. You think of the famous people that have gone on before us. I one time had a, a dialogue going on with the founder of, uh, of Microsoft, the co-founder of Microsoft. Bill Gates was one of them. Uh, but the other uh, guy I was dialoguing with him when he lived in Bellevue, Washington, because he needed Jesus real bad, real bad. And Paul Allen died unexpectedly, after we had, I had sent him several letters trying to introduce him to Jesus Christ. And I don't know if he ever came to faith or not, but I would pray so. God put us in this world to be salt and light. It's not about you and me. It's about telling other people about Jesus because they're, they're going to hell left and right. And the, you never know. I mean, the grief, the recent floods in Kentucky and all those people that perished, you know, crime victims in all of the major cities throughout America, the, the answer isn't gun control. In fact, in the largest cities in America, they have the strictest gun control laws in the United States of America. Chicago singularly has the toughest gun laws in the country, and their murder rate is off the charts. Why? Because taking away guns doesn't change the human heart. Ask Cain when he murdered his brother. He didn't need a gun, a rock, a, a spork would have done fine. It doesn't matter what you use to kill people. It matters that you got murder in your heart. That's where it starts. Jesus said what comes out of the mouth is simply what's already in the heart. Well, let's change some hearts. Let's give them to God. Let's introduce them to Jesus Christ. But Paul in verse 8 here says, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. <clears throat> Are you content? Yeah. Yeah. I've got a roof over my head. I've got clothes on my back. I don't care what brand I, I'm wearing or what kind of car or vehicle I drive. I'm just praising God. I don't have to walk everywhere. 
People who want to get rich, look at verse 9. <laughs> People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Interesting word, desires. The original language says willing to be, uh, wanting to be rich at any cost right now. Hmm. What does that look like? Well, look at verse 10. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many kinds of griefs. In other words, if money is your God, you'll do anything to acquire. It doesn't matter if it's legal or illegal. Ask the drug cartels. Ask the people that are, are, by, are putting together the fentanyl precursors in China, shipping them to the cartels in Mexico and with our porous border, killing 107,000 Americans last year alone on fentanyl overdoses. When does the nonsense stop? Now, if every one of those men, women, and children in the cartels in China loved Jesus Christ with all of their hearts, these things would go away instantly. That's, that's what people need in this world. If money is the obsession of our lives, not only do we become increasingly corrupt in what we're willing to do to get it, but we realize quickly it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. If money is the obsession of your life, you're going to be disappointed in the long run. That's why people obsessively gamble and play, pay, play the lottery. There is this desire to become rich. Oh, money will solve all of my issues. Really? Have you done any, any homework on who's won the lottery and what they did with it? Money often ruins people because now they can indulge sins they couldn't afford before. The desire to become rich, to have more. You know, some people don't mind dropping $100 on lottery tickets, but refuse to give God his 10%, which is what the word tithe means. But they'll gladly throw their money away on gambling, losing hundreds, thousands of dollars in the process. One time I had a dialogue with the sheriff up in uh, the county that has Cripple Creek in it. And he did not want legalized gambling to come to Cripple Creek. And I, I'd asked him uh, about five years after uh, they'd allowed gambling up there. I said, so how's this massive amount of money that's coming into your community now from gambling? And he says, it's the worst thing that ever happened to Cripple Creek. He says, all it has allowed us to do is quadruple the size of our police force, build bigger jails and newer cars. It is our crime statistics have shot off the roof. Worst thing that's ever happened to us. But the justification for people is, well, it's just entertainment. But our indulgences have a way of becoming addictions. You've heard of that phrase before, reinforcement through repetition. So the more you indulge that fleshly entertainment, as the world calls it, can you tell me exactly how that glorifies God? How does that glorify God? And isn't that the job of every Christian? How does what I do glorify God? And you can apply that pretty much to any area of your life, can't you? How is what I'm doing glorifying God? And if it's not, you should really reconsider whether you want that a part of your life or not. Malachi 3 talks about robbing God 
of the tithe, he says in Malachi 3, 8 through 10, will a man rob God? Yet you robbed me, God says. But you ask, well, how were we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. He's talking about the house of the Lord. Test me in this, the Lord said, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough for you to store it. But if the uh, Gallup uh, poll organization is correct, there's less than 20% of Christians that tithe. Less than 20% are biblical tithers. I hope that you are the exception uh, to that for sure. But it's quite a statement that Paul makes here in 1 Timothy 6, in, in verse 10. There, the, He doesn't say money is the root of all evil, but you've probably heard it quoted that way a bunch of times. It's not what it says. Money is not evil. It's not good. It's not bad. It all depends on what your attitude towards it is and what you do with it. Because what you do with your money reflects your priorities, doesn't it? It does. What's really important to you is what you spend your money on. Like food? I mean, that's way up on the top of the charts, isn't it? Today, putting some gas in your gas tank. The love of money is the root of all evil. And I think that defines greed. And that, that's why it is not good for our walk with the Lord. On the other hand, while the world chases after all of these things, in verse 11... He says something to Timothy that is a bit startling, but you, but, but you. In other words, in opposition to everything that we just read, but you, Timothy, you, oh man of God. And I'll bet Timothy's scratching his, his chin going, man of God? Really? I mean, that's like what the patriarchs were called, you know, man of God. He's probably thinking, I, I'm just your average Christian. Mm, understand how God sees you. A mighty man of God, a mighty woman of God. That's, how, that's not how the world sees you, but that is how God sees you. You are a, that's your real identity in Jesus Christ, isn't it? Not the way you feel or the way you think or your socioeconomic status. You are, if you're a Christian, you're a child of God. You're filled with His Holy Spirit. Your job description, give Him glory. Give Him honor. Give Him praise. Live for Him. That'll be reflected in your priorities, including the use of your money. It's all about Him. I give Him everything. I hold nothing back. He didn't hold anything back from me when He sent His Son. What does God require of you? Everything. All of your heart, mind, soul, strength, vision, dreams, aspirations. God wants it all so he can give you his peace. And all you've got to do is give him your burdens. Sounds like a good swap to me. He wants all of your stress, all of your headaches, all of your heartaches, all of your broken dreams. He wants it all. Why? Because your shoulders aren't big enough to bear the brunt of the burden of life. Life's hard. It's filled with disappointments and sickness and disease, a thousand other evil things that we can lay at the footstep of, of 
Satan himself. He's the destroyer, a liar. The list goes on and on as to what we could call him. But you, man of God, verse 11, flee from all of this. Flee. Circle the word flee, I did. That means run the other way. Go the complete opposite direction. If the world is saying, hawk everything you have to buy the new pickup truck, or you need a house up in Briargate that's way, 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 way beyond your ability to pay for. You man of God, you woman of God, flee from all of this. Well, what do we do? Here's, here, here's your homework assignment. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. I find it interesting that most of those are listed for us in the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and following. But here, Paul tells Timothy, you pursue it. Well, is it a fruit of the Holy Spirit or is it something I, I have to produce? It's really a cooperative effort. You yield to God and God changes you. He does the work of it. This is working out your salvation, not working for your salvation. That's a free gift. But growing in Christ-likeness, that's going to require a little bit of work on your part. Have you noticed? God's not going to make you get your Bible out and read it daily, but you should. It's not that you're earning God's approval. You've already got it. Jesus Christ has washed away all of your sins. But if you're going to grow in righteousness and godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness, you're going to have to every morning put yourself in his presence and asking him to plant this holy fruit in you. And then you put it into practice every, every bit of your life. Put it into practice. Be why? Because you are a man of God. You are a woman of God. That's your real identity. You're a godly daughter of the king, a godly son of the king, a prince. You're more concerned with the things of God than the things of man. That's what defines you. That's why it should alter the way you think about worldly stuff. What do you want more than anything else in this life? I'll give you a second to think about it. Don't say it out loud and embarrass yourself. <sighs> when you die, can you take it to heaven with you? Then rethink your priorities. Isn't that simple? Did you know that Christianity is that simple? Does it glorify God? Can you take it with you into eternity? That's why I like to make my investment in people. That's why I like teaching God's Word to folks like you. It changes people's lives to those willing to absorb it and, and pursue it, as Paul is telling Timothy to do. You've messed up a lot. I have too. If you're a child of God, you're forgiven. Our sins humble us before God. That's all, that's all they do. They drive us back to the foot of the cross where we say, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm, I'm sorry. Godliness implies a good and holy life with a, with a real special emphasis on its source, Jesus Christ. 
a deep love and honor, a reverence for God. That's what should be the ruling principle of your life, your relationship with God. Remember what John the Baptist said one time in John 3 and verse 30? He said, I must decrease. He must increase. That's the rule of your life. You, your flesh, that's got to decrease. You got all of God when you got saved. He wants all of you. And the pursuit of that is called sanctification, growing in godliness. But you have to pursue it. It's something we chase after instead of the things of the world. Because some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. It says there in verse 10, and have pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, I, lo I love how that is juxtaposed there. But you, man of God, here's the really important stuff. Flee the worldly thought life and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight. Do you see how that's an odd phrase, isn't it? You should be known for your gentleness, but fight the good fight. Okay, you understand who the real enemy is. Put on your boxing gloves and go to town on Satan. If you're tired of him kicking you, then kick back. That's the essence of spiritual warfare. Fight, verse 22, or excuse me, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession, that is, of Christ Jesus in the presence of many witnesses. That, this was Timothy's confession here, his public confession of his faith it probably at his baptism. Verse 13, in the sight of God who gives light to everything and of Christ Jesus who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this commandment without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you, did you notice there in verse 14, Jesus is coming back. I can hear it now. Ready or not, here I come. I want you to be ready. I want you to be ready. I want you to concern yourself with nothing but Him. I want you to worry about nothing. I want you to pursue Him, the Prince of Peace, so that you can experience the peace of God that transcends all understanding. Don't you want some peace in your life? How about a little love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness? Self-control. Who of us couldn't stand a little bit more all of that stuff in our lives? That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not the fruit of you. It's the fruit of your submission to Him. He's planting the fruit. And like any good fruit tree, it takes time to produce fruit. Be patient. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with others. None of us are where we would like to be spiritually, but by the grace of God, hopefully we are learning, we are growing, we are changing. As the Word of God is shared with you and you realize God actually is going to hold you accountable for everything in chapter 6 when you walk out of this place this morning, it should start changing the way you think. It should start changing the way you act and the, the priorities of your life. We are not of this world. Not of this world. In the world, yes. But not of this world. You belong to a different king. You serve a different master. He's coming soon for his church. 
I mean, when I hear about China and North Korea and Russia and all the saber rattling, you realize that's been since the 50s that any Russian threatened us with nuclear war. As a kid in New York City, we used to practice nuclear drills. For some reason or another, when the, uh, they had a nuclear drill, we were supposed to crawl underneath our little wooden desks and cover our heads. It's a nuclear bomb. You think that desk is going to... That's the silliest thing. But we did that. We thought it was great fun just because we, we got a break from schoolwork for just a second, you know. And now China. Hmm. Israel is in trouble because uh, they've already got weapons-grade uranium in Iran, and they said the first thing they want to do is take out Israel. Then they're coming after America, whom they call the great Satan. Boy, there's the deceived people if ever I met one. We live in a day and age where all it takes is one nuclear nutcase to push the button. As tensions rise, you have to understand you need to be prepared for these things spiritually. I don't bring these things to your attention to scare you. I walk in perfect peace. I know who holds this world in the palm of his hand. He got the whole world in his hand. You know, there's truth in that. It's a, not only a great song, and I can't sing it worth a rip, but bear with me. There is theological truth in this. You either believe that he's got the whole world in the palm of his hand, or you walk around in doubt and fear and insecurity. Your choice. Your choice. You like bearing burdens. You like being stressed out, fretful, fearful, anxious. You like that? Talk to your stomach. I don't think it likes it. I want to experience the peace of God that transcends all understanding. This is a commandment to put these things into practice. Verse 14 tells us it's not a suggestion. It's a commandment because God knows what's best for us. Verse 15, which God will bring about the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in His own time. It says in Galatians 4, 4, that Jesus came the first time in the perfection of God's timing. His next appearance, it will be in the perfect point in time that God has foreordained. God, the blessed and only ruler, King of kings, Lord of lords, He just breaks into this doxology that just tickles you because He's so in love with God. Paul is just so in love with the Lord. He's reaffirming you with his own mouth. God's got this. God's got this. Everything you worry about, God's got this. Everything that causes you concern, God's got this. Did you know he knows how everything is going to turn out? He's already been there. He's got a handle on this. Nothing takes him by surprise. I think God's up there wringing his hands going, oh, I didn't see that coming. Walk by faith, not by sight. Certainly not by your own understanding. It says, you might want to jot this down in a margin in your Bible. There are Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not, that's a command, do not lean upon your own understanding. But in all of your ways, how many of your ways? All of your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your footsteps. Isn't that a glorious promise? He says, your next step, I got that. Trust in me. Don't walk by sight. Sometimes you just need to turn the TV off. The news upsets you. Turn off the TV. Get your head in your Bible. Talk to the Prince of Peace. 
Let him give you another portion of it. He is coming back. Verse 16, God, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and glory and might forever. And he wraps it up here in verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world. Probably doesn't include any of us in this room, but, you know, he's saying it just in case. There's some rich guy there who just won the lottery or something. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in their wealth, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I mean, God gave us such a beautiful place to live. You know, every, every morning you look at that front range, you go, man, I could have been born in, like, Salt Lake City or something, you know, or the Mojave Desert. Uh, you know, we live in a beautiful, beautiful place. God's given us such a beautiful world to enjoy for free. You don't have to spend money to do that. Just look around you and, and praise God in heaven. Verse 18, command them to do good, these rich folks, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. That's really a, a test of our hearts. Jesus said in, in Matthew 6, in verse 19, regarding our treasures, he said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Here's the key. For where your treasure is, there also your heart lies. <sighs> I may not have anything in this world. It doesn't matter. I'm content with food, clothing, and shelter. I've got it. I'm going home to a deluxe lunch of generic macaroni cheese made with real butter, heavy cream, and hot dogs chopped up in it. I'm living in tall cotton. I am content with that. I am happy with that. It doesn't matter to me what I eat. I'm just glad I get to eat. Aren't you? Of course, have you noticed how all of our sermons kind of point towards food as the noon hour approaches? I'm, I'm working on getting you out here so you can indulge. Be rich in good deeds. Verse 19, in this way they will lay up for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, the kingdom age, so that they may take hold of the life, spiritual life, that's truly life. Verse 20, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the truths that we've just read about in this one chapter alone. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. That's what these Gnostics were doing in the first century context, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Now, that's an interesting phrase because there are some theological uh, commentators that feel like it is not possible for a Christian to wander from the faith. Really? Then why the warning? Paul is a Christian. He's writing to a Christian about Christian churches. If it's not possible to wander from the faith, why did he put this warning in there? It would be pointless and senseless if it was not possible to fall away from the Lord. Of course, you can fall away from the Lord. Maybe you've had backsliding experiences in your Christian experience where at one point in time you were closer and at another time maybe a bit further away. Call that backsliding or whatever you wish. But you know that it's possible to wander from the faith. 
What do you have to do from the wander the, to wander from the faith? Don't read, don't pray, don't go to church, don't worship, don't fellowship, don't share your faith, and you too can fall away from your faith. What do you have to do to fall away from the Lord? Nothing. In this world, the default position is the flesh. So all you've got to do as a Christian is to lose your energy, to, is to stop doing all of the things that make Christians stronger. That's why Satan doesn't want you reading your Bible or praying or seeking God's face or worshiping. Like Dwight L. Moody said so many years ago in the middle 1800s, sin will keep you from this book, but this book will keep you from sin. Got to remember that. Is it, is it critical in this day and age that you be in the Word of God every day? If you can, Absolutely. This is where you get your marching orders. Without it, it's like trying to field strip an, an M16, but you've never, you, don't have any, you don't have a manual with you. Well, you've got a can opener, a spork, and good wishes. Well, you're, the weapon will never work again. It will never work again. You need the manual. This is your manual as a Christian. If you're not in it, you don't know what God has for you. You don't know the equipment that he's got for your engagement in spiritual warfare. You don't know how much he loves you. God loves you. I can never say that enough. I can never hear that enough. Timothy, verse 20, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. Grace and peace. So, what do I want you to do with this, all this information? Put it into practice. Pursue Christ vigorously. That's what I want you to do. We got enough lazy Christians, don't add to that number. Vigorously pursue Christ. In Him alone we'll find uh, our calling, we'll find true and lasting contentment. Put God at the center of your life and everything else will turn out just fine. Put anything else in His place and nothing will turn out fine. Well, how would you have me do that, Pastor Jim? By the power of His Holy Spirit. His resources are infinite. By devoting yourself to the same four things that made the early church strong, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the Word of God. Devoting themselves, secondly, to fellowship, that's what we're doing this morning, to communion and to prayer. We had communion this morning reminding us that we are one body in Christ Jesus. Oh, there's many different churches and denominations and kinds. That, that to me, is irrelevant. Go to church where you feel happiest going to church, where they teach the Word of God and the Lordship of Jesus Christ and, and everything else will be just fine. But communion reminds us of the price that was paid for our salvation. It reminds me I have a responsibility to Him in this relationship. He died for me. Am I willing to die to this world so that I can live for Him? That's the goal that is before us. The result, you pursue Christ, what's the result? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. All of this stuff in Galatians 5, you're going to want to read that, by the way, when you go home. Galatians 5, you need that stuff in your life. You need that stuff in your life. 
Because as I went down through the list, you did a little mental checklist on yourself and you said, I fall short. I'm not walking in love or joy or peace or patience or kindness or goodness or faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. You did a little mental checklist and your meter told you exactly where you're at spiritually. And that's just the Holy Spirit of God telling you how much He loves you and He wants to take every care, every burden, every concern of yours. He loves you. He loves you. Why? Beats me. I sometimes struggle with loving myself. But God loves me. And it's not based on my performance, but His. Jesus Christ already earned all of God's love and grace and mercy for you. All you've got to do, yeah, praise band, come on up, that's fine. All you've got to do is walk in it. Ask for it. You want peace? Sometimes we have not because we ask not. Ask. Well, the praise band, as they lead us in song, is going to give you that opportunity. And if you don't mind, I'm thinking I'm going to jet out of here quickly because my stomach's not quite right. My throat's definitely not right.